Hi, hi. This is the Proceed Playbook Podcast, the show about Black women and women of color making bold moves in corporate and entrepreneurial spaces. Proceed is the coach in your air, pushing, encouraging, and inspiring you throughout your journey. I'm your host, Aprilene Alexander, founder of Proceed. In this episode, I got the chance to meet with Keisha Gibson, another proud Trinidadian who was remote working long before it became cool. Keisha is a partner and managing director at Accenture, one of the largest information technology services and consulting firms in the world. When Keisha told me about her attempts to outrun the pandemic with her husband, visiting over 20 countries, and using this unique situation to chart a new career path, I knew her story had to be part of the podcast. Keep listening to find out how the gift of time and space during the pandemic gave Keisha the opportunity to plan and execute the next steps of her career. Let's meet Keisha. So Keisha, you are joining me today and I know you have a really packed schedule as a partner and lots of other strings to your bow. So I want to talk about you as a Trinidadian and I've always wanted to ask you this question. Keisha, are you a carnival baby? Because you love carnival. <laughs> no, no, but are you like really a carnival baby? You, you born, know I'm a carnival were, baby. Were you born during a carnival yeah, season? No, I don't think I was actually. My So my birth. But I'm, I'm born in March, so that wouldn't be... Carnival babies are like September, aren't they? Are they? Yes, because they're after. Yeah, they're after. Because I'm just... You have this love of carnival and this love of carnival culture that is not about what it what it has become with being seen. Like, I think you would be super happy and super comfortable in juvie dress, you know, covered head to toe in modern oil. And a super happy and comfortable in a frontline costume or an individual costume. So where has this love of, you know, I mean, it has to be that you're Trinidadian, but I feel as do you love it a lot more than the average Trinidadian does. <laughs> I blame my mother. And I did say that to her this carnival. She has two daughters that are completely in love with carnival. And that's how she's always been. I've always known her to be involved in every party every single time, Monday and Tuesday on the streets. And my dad hates carnival, so it's definitely not not him. He'd be at home being very, very <laughs> grumpy. Oh, I don't know. I just, I think the reason I love carnival is, is, is somewhere in what you said at the beginning. It's a leveler. You can't tell who's who. You can't tell who's rich. You can't tell who's poor. You can't tell who's Trinidadian. You can't yeah. tell who's not. We're all, when it comes to juvie, it's certainly a socioeconomic leveler as well because it is oil, yeah. paint, mud. And then on the street, it's a leveler in terms of body, shape, size. Everyone looks beautiful in a carnival costume. Now, I'm not sure I agree with you on not wanting to be seen. The reason I pay a lot of money for an individual <laughs> costume is that I just like being at the front of the band in the biggest costume, which... You know, it's, it's definitely one of my um, um, areas of development, so to speak. And I've certainly enjoyed it more. I've had to, to spend on it. I tend to enjoy it even more. And how do you weave your culture into your career identity? You know, Keisha, the MD, the partner, like how is she infusing her Trinidadianness, you know, at work? 
Well, I mean, my Trinidadianness is a very important part of me. In, in every single intro that I do within Accenture, I start off by telling everyone I'm from Trinidad and Tobago, which a lot of people don't do, actually. So it's a very, very important part of, of who I am. Uh, it's a culture I'm incredibly proud of. It's probably why I'm also very into travel and seeing different cultures, because Trinidad is truly a, a melting pot of yeah. different cultures. I'll give you a good example. So as part of my role with early talent, uh, and because there are lots of religions and people of different backgrounds as part of that community, I, I've always, always found it um, interesting that in Trinidad, we celebrate all of these religious holidays, different cultures yeah. as well. You know, we all get Diwali, Eid, yes. Shouta Baptist, Easter, every single holiday on the planet we seem to have as a nation, as a public holiday, where we are formally invited to celebrate somebody else's culture. And I, I take that from Trinidad and infuse it in the way in which I, I do things. So even little things like when we do lunches, I make sure that the, the food is halal because most meat in Trinidad is halal. Most people don't know that, but even when you go to Kentucky Fried Chicken, it's halal mm -hmm. chicken, right? And I don't see why you can't do that as a default. I think I've also expanded on that, having been to some really beautiful countries where when I tell people I've gone there, they say, why would you go there? And then when I tell them what I've seen, they, they want to go as well. It's a combination of just being appreciative of different cultures, but also continuing to be curious about others and planning for that 100%. I want to start from your undergrad experience, because I don't know much, although I know you went to an all-boys school for the last two years of your of your education in Trinidad, which is a big deal if you're in Trinidad, because it only let like five top girls in every year. What was that experience like? Yeah, no, I mean, it's a really good question. If I take you back to primary school, so I went to an all-girl primary school, Catholic. I then went to an all-girl secondary school, also Catholic. And after O-levels, at least that's what it was called in, in those days, I chose to do math, further math, and biology and GP for my subjects. And the only place I could do that was at an all-boys school, another Catholic school. You're right, they let in a handful of girls into, into the year. It was really interesting because the first couple of terms, the girls were came top of the class. I think the boys were highly distracted. And then <laughs> after that, we sort of raised the bar in terms of performance. And after that, the guys buckled down and started to perform quite highly as well. So in, in, in some ways, it's actually a really good, very small use case for why having diversity actually matters, because the, the guys just could not take the fact that girls were topping their class and they just started to study really hard. A couple of them went to MIT for their undergrad. I went to Wharton for mine. And so what I'd say is that that, that experience probably taught me how to be competitive um, but ho how to also collaborate and also made me stretch my thinking in terms of where I wanted to go next with, with education. I had not been thinking about Ivy League in the US until I realized, oh, maybe I'm maybe I'm just as smart as some of these these guys. And when they started to apply to go to places like MIT and to the Ivy League schools in, in the US, I thought, well, if they could do it, so can I. And that's how I ended up applying to Wharton and that's how I ended up there. 
And how was Wharton? It's such a prestigious institution. How was that experience? It was hard, actually. So when I moved to the U.S., it was my second time outside of Trinidad and Tobago. And my second time to the U.S., the first time had, I had been there for about a week at an aunt's house. And that basically was just playing with my cousins, not really doing much more. Everyone understood me at my aunt's house. When I then moved to Wharton a couple of years later, it felt as though I was in a completely different world, away from all family, all friends. My accent then was incredibly strong. And so I wasn't always understood. And then, you know, obviously the level of academia in Wharton is second to none, right? So in in class, I was rubbing shoulders with some of the best, the brightest, but also some very wealthy people as well. And that's when I really started to understand what wealth actually meant. It's just a really interesting experience, opened up my eyes in terms of what real smart people can do and how to stretch my thinking in that space. It also made me realize there was a world outside of the Caribbean. It was good to feel as though I could rub shoulders with some of the, the best and the brightest. And again, that was another stepping stone to widen my thinking in terms of what I wanted to do next and what potential I could have in the business world. And you've had a couple of international stints post your undergrad. Where have you worked? I think, I've well, worked is, is one question. I've lived in about eight countries. I've, I've stopped counting, but they included, of course, Trinidad and Tobago, as well as the US and the UK, Spain, South Africa, South Korea, New Zealand, Costa Rica, quite a few countries and all very, very different. And I've stopped counting how many places I've actually worked in. What I do know is that I've worked in every continent except for Antarctica. <laughs> and I've mainly done that through doing telecoms work, which is the field that I'm currently in. So the past probably 15 or so years is 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 when I've majored within the telecoms space, doing consulting transformation type work across multiplayer companies. So the likes of a Vodafone, a Virgin Media or two, Sky, equivalent of those companies in in pretty much most of the most of the continents. So I've traveled quite a lot for work and on a personal level, I've traveled to 118 countries and yes, I'm counting. So um <laughs> travel a lot for, for, at a personal level as well. And this is a really great segue into the MBA conversation. At what point in time in your career did you decide to do your MBA and why go to Spain to do it? Well, that was an, a really interesting decision I think I made. So I had been working in the FMCG space. I was working for British American Tobacco, a subsidiary of BAT in the Caribbean called WITCO. And I was in charge of 30 something countries across the Caribbean and Central America doing market research as well as brand marketing. And the BAT had moved the capital of their region to Costa Rica. And so I moved and lived in Costa Rica for some time as part of as part of that job and started to learn Spanish there. And I think that's also what really awakened me to other parts of the world. I'd not been to Europe. I'd not been to London or England at that point in time. Uh, I, I didn't realize I could pick up a language so quickly. So I, I became quite fluent in Spanish relatively quickly, which was a surprise. And I wanted to continue doing that. And so the combination of the language skill, as well as wanting to explore, there's, there's always going to be a, a travel theme here, wanting to explore <laughs> beyond the Caribbean and Central America. 
and also not wanting to sacrifice quality of education, I decided relatively quickly that I wanted to to study in Europe, ideally in Spain, but I didn't want to go to a school that was uh, less than top five in Europe. And, and so I chose Instituto de Empresa, which is IE. And at that time, they were number three in Europe for their international MBA. I got a full scholarship there, and that's what got me to, to do my MBA and to, to move to Europe. And how was, you know, that your MBA experience in a different country? You knew the language, but probably not enough to be mistaken as a local. So, you know, at the end of your MBA experience, what what did you take away from it? I love the MBA experience. I really loved working in teams. I loved getting to know people from a a wide range of cultures. Most of the the people, they were either European or Latin American, which I thought was uh, quite quite a nice mix. I love the way we had people that had a little business experience and a lot of business experience working in teams to to solve business problems. And quite frankly, that's what awakened me to the to the world of consulting. I just thought I'd like to continue doing this. And in some ways, being in consulting is almost like being in your MBA, but with real client problems working in multicultural, multifaceted groups in order to solve those problems for clients. And looking back, if someone came to you now and and asked you for advice in doing an MBA, is the MBA thesis still a positive one for you? Would you still encourage someone to do it? I've been asked this question many times, is is an MBA worth it? And I don't think anyone has actually landed on on an answer a definitive answer for that so my answer has always been yeah. intense for me I tick so many different boxes right I got to travel I got a degree I got a new uh, got into a new line of work which I absolutely love and I haven't turned you know turned back since then it was a scholarship for me so I didn't have to fund it although I did have to fund or figure out how to fund working in a new country so it ticked loads of boxes for me so it is one of maybe three things that I I believe has helped me progress in my career, which is getting that MBA. Would I have been able to work in the UK or in Europe without it? Maybe, but I think it would have been harder. Would I have been opened up to the world of consulting without it? Maybe, but I think it would have taken longer. Would I be where I am today without it? Probably not. So in, in my own personal, uh, I guess, assessment of the MBA, it, it certainly has paid back to me in, you know, in multiples, actually. So the MBA helped you decide or crystallize that you really wanted to get into management consulting or transformation work. For anybody who doesn't understand what transformation work is, could you explain it to us what it means? When you study an MBA, and businesses come to you and try to convince you to apply for jobs there, that's when I realized, right, there's a world out there I didn't know about. And I thought, well, I'm just going to try it and see if I like it. And that's how I ended up. So I didn't know what it was. But to answer your question, and how would I describe what is management consulting or, or even transformation? I use a very simple analogy. And I refer to us as the almost the doctors for businesses. And I hope that don't take it in a, in a grandiose manner, but basically we go into businesses 
and do diagnostics, right, to find out, are you profitable enough? Are you efficient enough? Are you customer-centric enough? Do your employees like being here? And a whole host of questions that then unlocks areas where a business can perform better. And once you've unlocked where the business can perform better, that then leads you down many, many different paths, right? So it can be, okay, the technology you have is old and archaic, and you need to move to the cloud in order to become more efficient and also to to get sustainability benefits as well. And that's a different type of transformation. It could be that you are... Uh, operating at um, at a co- with a cost base that's a lot higher than your peers, and therefore the type of transformation might be ZBBB, which is zero-based budgeting, where you look at how to build from the ground up a lean and efficient organization. Or a third example might be that you're getting loads of customer complaints coming in, you're losing customers on a regular basis, they're spending less with you. And that could lead to a different type of transformation where it's all about customer centricity, looking at the marketing, sales, effectiveness, contact center, digital, and coming up with ways in which you can transform that business so that customers do see value from it and it becomes more, you know, more profitable. So uh, I guess the answer is how long is a piece of string, right? Because depending on what your diagnostics uh, produce, you can end up doing a wide range of different types of transformational activities within a client or an industry. That's a really good way of explaining it. We had a conversation in preparation for this, and you said that you now lead 1,000 plus people. And that to me is not my ministry. It would induce a little bit of anxiety each morning for me. What is it like to be responsible for 1,000 plus people? I think it's great, actually. I, I think we talk a lot about having more diverse leaders and having more diverse teams and more diverse organizations. And very often what you see in companies is that they do hire more diverse leaders, but then your span of control or your responsibility is a responsibility of one or two compared to some of your counterparts, right? In in my case, that's that's the opposite. I lead within strategy and consulting for the UKI. I lead the largest team, um, bar none. And I think it's an incredibly important team because it's a team of what I call early talent. So it's the the new entrance into our company and into this line of work who've just left university in some instances. In other instances, they're apprentices, so they're getting their degrees while getting on the job training. Sometimes they're, they're just here for a one-year placement, um, or they could even just be here for a summer internship. So it's some of the youngest, freshest, brightest minds in, in the UKI and, and globally, because we also have some global parts of the organization, people who come from outside of the UK as part of my organization as well. I think it's great. As part of that, I also lead an 80-person management team because clearly a one to a thousand ratio would be quite a big one. (laughs) Unsustainable. Exactly. But a one to 10 or one to 12 or one to 15 ratio makes a lot more sense. So I have quite a large management team that helps me to run it day in, day out. And and a beautiful pyramid underneath me that means that 
I mainly get any escalations and get to do lovely things like monthly town halls with everyone, sharing monthly reflections via Yammer or again via some form of broadcast, and just being able to shape the strategy of that part of the organization and also be able to influence the rest of the organization. What I think is incredibly important is as we're shaping young minds and getting them to learn and grow as part of our organization, which is the right thing to do, we also have to use their unique qualities and the unique way in which they think to to infuse that in the rest of the organization as well. So my my role is almost to to bridge that gap. I'm incredibly proud because that team of Circa 1000 is very, very diverse. It's over 50% female. It's over 40%, 40 to 50% BAME. It has a large Caribbean population, Black Caribbean population, because we've focused on that. We have a large population mm. of neurodiverse people, as well as a large population of socioeconomically diverse people and we also have a large lgbtq plus community and also i've been seeing lots of other religions that normally aren't in the majority also at a large proportion in our in our team such as the uh, such as the muslim religion so i think we have a beautiful melting pot of diversity lots of intersectionality i think we need another word because most people seem to have three and four things they're intersecting with. If you if you think of all yeah. those elements of diversity that I just mentioned, and I think it's 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 the way of the future. Frankly, what I say to this group every time I meet with them is that they are the future leaders of Accenture. And when I look at the leaders currently in Accenture, a large proportion have come from the analyst community. So I can't wait in twenty years to see what Accenture looks like, but I'm hoping it looks very similar to my early talent group in terms of you know a large element of diversity at the top with real roles and responsibilities and spans of control as well. And how would you say your leadership style has changed over the years? It has had to, right? I think if I think back to when I probably became a manager a very long time ago, that would have been a manager of one or two or a handful of people. And it's a very different hands-on experience. And in some ways, micromanagement experience, I think I probably started off as a micromanager, do this exactly this way because that's how I would have done it, right? And, yeah. and clearly that's not, that's being a manager, that's not being a leader, which I've had to learn in all fairness. And, and if I turn the clock to where we are now in, in having such a large team, being a leader is setting that vision, giving people the parameters within which to work, and then trusting and checking in and knowing when to get into the detail and when not to get into the detail. So when I took on this role for the first time, I was attending every single meeting, which was the right thing for me to do to understand what's happening in the business. Now, I attend very few meetings unless there's something that I think really needs my help or where I think there's not enough progress. What my team knows is that they can contact me at any time. So we have our team's group. That's where there are constant pings of a question here or a question there. And, and I'm, I'm always on, you know, on point to answer those questions or to point people in the right direction. So I think the leadership style has moved from being 
very hands-on and into the detail to forming a team around me of people and skill sets that complement my own, giving them the right guardrails, trusting them, but also being there to to catch any things that might fall through the net, so to speak. And that first manager role is so important. And it's also on some level the hardest, at least I remember it being the hardest to me because companies would like to think that they have like the necessary support and kind of guidance for you. But in a lot of cases, you're just thrown in and you're, you are learning about yourself whilst people are learning about you. And, you know, that first leadership role, those people are your guinea pigs, essentially. And you hope it turns out right, but sometimes it doesn't. And it's exactly the same, right? It, it is absolutely exactly the same. So unless you know exactly what you're doing and if you are my view is that you're in the wrong role because you're not stretching yourself so there's always an element of the unknown an element of if i make this decision is this the right one what are the Mm. uh, repercussions of this but you you do have to trust yourself and you also have to have that team around you that will say uh hmm no don't think so you know, so it, it's, it, I don't have a very hierarchical team. They they shut me down when I'm throwing ideas in the ring that they don't approve of. And that's the right way of, of doing things. But I also don't have any ego. So that doesn't matter to me. I don't want to command and control because I don't know what to command. To your point, I, it, there's so many unknowns out there that I've assumed mm-hmm. I'll probably have 50% of the answers and the other 50% are going to have to come from somewhere. So there, there is always this element of, unknown if I'm honest that as a leader you just have to you just have to get accustomed to if you think about COVID what leader had you know did any um, case studies in their MBA to tell them how to react to a pandemic when it happens not a single one of us you just have to rock and roll right and try to figure it out and make some mistakes along the way but hope you make them fast and then pivot and move in a different direction I think that's 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 one of the most important skills and having a team that will follow you and and back you and call you out when they think you're on the on the wrong track and rock and roll we did during covid <laughs> i i made so many mistakes with my team um but i am grateful that i got grace in a period that we were you know it was just unprecedented So you and your husband, David, decide that the world is coming to an end. So why go through that experience in the UK? We'll just get in the car and drive until the world comes to an end and have that experience on the road. And then whilst whilst you're doing this, you had just left a job. You were taking some time out and you were deciding on what next to do. So talk me through that decision to leave the UK during... COVID and then what made you sit down and say okay this is what I want and here's how I'm going to achieve it on the first question it I mean we followed all the rules so let me just say that right now but because I was in between jobs and David had already retired as planned we decided that we would go to to France and then we kept moving the goalpost further east as more and more restrictions came down in the UK and the rest of Europe changed their ways of working or learned from COVID. And we took about 23 COVID tests within a very short period of time as well. So we were constantly, constantly checking. 
that we were safe. And in some ways, it was the safest space for us because it was just the two of us in my car. We went to Airbnbs and hotels that were pretty much abandoned because there were no tourists. And so we we pretty much discovered a way in which to be to isolate and to be safe during COVID while experiencing other cultures. And it was amazing. We even ended up in places like Egypt, seeing the pyramids with no one else around us. We ended up in in Rome, seeing lots of those lovely sites with no, no one around us as well. So it was a really magical experience for us. And one I don't talk about too often, I talk about a bit a bit more now, but themed unfair to talk about traveling to 20 countries in that year of COVID when most people were were at home. But yeah, an amazing, amazing experience. On your second question, which is on what did I do then in order to prepare for my next role or next job, was uh, as we were traveling, I just started forming a list of things that I really loved in previous roles and things that I really disliked in previous roles and use that to form a list of organizations where I thought I could be successful. It became really clear to me that I would stick with management consulting because it's a profession that I I like. I like those transformational problems to solve. I would stick with the industry for now, but I do think a lot of things that I see in the telecoms industry are transferable. That helped me to to narrow it down to which organizations, because I also knew I wanted to work for a large organization with a brand that everyone would recognize that can truly do transformational work. They wouldn't just talk about it. They could deliver end-to-end. I interviewed with four companies. All of them are names that people would would recognize. I probably won't say who they are on this. Three of those organizations offered me roles. And I chose Accenture because we do the strategy work. So I sit in strategy and consulting. But I also have peers that can do the hardcore technology implementation, the cloud transformation. We also have BPO services, so customer operations, call centers. We have a lot of innovation, so anything to do with AI, RPA, metaverse. And we have lots of companies that we have acquired um, as part of our song capability. And they do some of the, you know, what I would say the sexy side of of um of consulting around leading edge technology there's marketing in there there's advertising in there there's design etc and so it was a really easy choice for me to come in as a, as a relatively senior md into accenture to be able to stitch together all of those and also still have access to the clients that i'd worked with in the past as part of traveling for those for that year across those 20 countries it just became clearer sometimes space gives you clarity it just became really clear what i what i needed to do or where i needed to go to be to be successful at this stage of my career so you're out of the uk you make a list and you have four or five and you know exactly what it is you want to do so then what do you do do you go on linkedin 
and, you know, make contact or do you go through your network? Like operationally, what were those physical steps on, you know, that led you to the interview process for all of these big name firms? The first step that I took after making that list of organizations was to map that to what I would call intangibles. Did I know anyone there or was I one step removed from someone, not just in the organization, but but in the exact space in which I wanted to be in? So consulting, telecoms. And unsurprisingly, I was well connected in most of those companies and were I wasn't. I knew someone that could get me a connection within one of those companies. I also looked at recruiters that had recruited for me in the past or had gotten me jobs in the past. And I reached out to them because they they know me or knew me. And then thirdly, I spoke to my clients once I'd narrowed down the list, especially when I was it was I was at decision making a decision making point. I spoke to my clients about my options and got them to weigh in on, does this make sense? Would you follow me if I went to work for that organization? And that was actually quite an eye-opening conversation um, for one of the organizations that had made me an offer. One of my clients said, absolutely not, because I've had a bad experience with that organization in the past. And clearly that's just one data point, but it was an important data point for me, especially when, you know, that that option was neck on neck, neck and neck with another option. Uh, so those were the three steps. Do I know someone in the organization in my space? If I don't, do I know someone that can make that introduction? Are there recruiters that can get me in? And then thirdly, with my clients that I would want to continue working for, would they continue to work for me under, under those other other brands? And that's really important because as senior at your level, the clients that you've worked with before, it's important that they want to come along with you because they would bring business to your new organization and you'd probably have an inside track into some of the problems that they have. Was there any point in time where you felt as though, oh, what am I doing? I know, how how did you keep pushing through because you know that this was the right space and this was the right company and the right job for you? I I didn't have many doubts, April, actually. The more I had conversations, the more I became sure of this being the right space. I had you know, over a decade of experience already in this space, so it would be, someone would have to explain to me why not. I've always gotten good reviews in terms of fellowship, as well as sales. I had really good stories about transformational work that I'd done in the past, globally, as well as in the UK. It would be hard to poke holes, actually, in that. And that's what made me even more secure, I guess, or more determined. And out of the four, there was one that said no, and I still to this day think, I'm not sure why you said no. Genuinely, not because I think of myself as great, but even the feedback that I got was just quite inconclusive, which is which is absolutely mm. fine. It might have been a culture thing. It might have been ways of working. It might have been how I presented myself. But it wasn't based on not having experience. And so I think particularly when I got the first offer, it made me even more confident that I was moving in the right direction. And actually, my conversations with others became more detailed and more specific about things that I genuinely thought I would need to be successful. Um, And that was things like making sure I could 
recruit a team in because it's very lonely going in as a uh, someone senior in, into an organization without the, the ability to shake up a team. It was also being quite clear on which sector and which clients I would want to work with from the day one and also working together before day one in order to come up with a what I call a partner integration plan where there would be a senior sponsor in the organization that would help me build my network quickly because in these organizations it's not having mm. the lack of skill set that can impede your success but it's more the softer things it's the network the support of people around you to help you do the do the getting into the right client conversations those are the bits that are incredibly important and those are the things that i negotiated quite a lot before deciding where to go and 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 seeing that openness and understanding that yes you're right those are quite important building blocks for any senior leader to be successful in a company like this and what were the three most important values or characteristics you were looking for in a company for this partnership role i think i touched on some of these characteristics before it was access to all of the clients i'd worked for in the past so not being locked out due to mm. some companies the way in which they're structured especially if there's an audit arm means you can't consult for an organization that they that they audit. So it was really important to make sure that any organization I worked with, that wasn't the case. Could I still be successful? Probably, but it would take longer because I would have to build that client trust from scratch. And that, and that takes a lot of time. It's what I've done over the past 10 years or so, and I didn't want to lose that. The second one was just feeling like I had a sense of, there's a, there's a survey that we do in Accenture, which is called Great Place to Work, I think. And, and in that quest, in that survey, I think there's a question that asks, do you have a best friend at work? And the simple reason for that question is, is basically to determine whether or not you have a support network. If you answer no, it means you have lots of transactional relationships, but you don't have, you know, you don't have any stickiness, no, no sense of belonging, essentially. So that's the other thing that I thought was quite important are, are the people that I am meeting. And I met lots of people. Can I build a personal relationship with them? Can I build something that's beyond transactional? Do I believe I can spend the time with them and they'll have my back and I'll have their back? So it was the intangible bit. And then the third bit for me was having a senior and loud sponsor. So someone who would agitate on my behalf because being in an organization for a short period of time means you don't really know how it operates you don't know how it how to navigate or what, what really helps is having someone who knows all of that but also has the clout to to make certain things happen so those are probably the three the three things for me that were most important but in addition to that I really wanted to be able to have my own team not because I didn't think I could use the team that was on the ground. But again, if people have been working together for 10 years, it's really hard for a new person to come in and say, oh, come and work for me instead. That's, even I mm -hmm. in that situation will probably say, not so sure, don't know who you are, right? And therefore, <laughs> yeah. being able to bring that new team, new and diverse team in was important, was important as well. Anything you would have done differently, even though the outcome was ultimately successful very successful no 
I don't think there's anything I would have done differently. I think it happened at the right time, happened at the right pace. I think taking that year out gave me clarity. What I'm really glad I did not do is move swiftly from one job to the next because that's that's the risk. The risk is, especially during COVID, you panic. Oh my goodness, um, are we going to even end up having jobs? There were, you know, no one knew what was happening at that point in time, and it would have been a really easy decision to say, I'm just going to stay in the UK and find something else, anything to bridge that gap. But I genuinely mm. think it would have been wrong for my CV. It would also not have allowed me the time and the space to really think about what I wanted to do and what I needed to be successful. And so that's one thing that COVID probably forced on me to a certain degree, but turned out to be one of the best decisions that I'd, I'd made. And what, in your opinion, does a future partner CV look like 10 years into someone's career? And I'll explain. There's an associate in your 1,000 plus employees who knows your name, he, she, or they knows your career, and they want to get to your level. What actions or what things do you think they should be doing now that will help him, her, or they get to your level? I've been asked that question several times. Every time there's a new joiner cohort, someone Someone asked the question as well. It, it's it's hard to determine exactly what you need to do. And similar to your question on, is an MBA worth it? I think the answer to this question, how to get from entry level to MD or partner, is a personal one. So for me, what I think was important was to, to quite quickly be able to listen, observe the situation, and then pivot based on that. That's what I've personally done. And I still do it today as an MD. So if I'm in a client situation, I tend to be the person that whose role changes all the time in that client situation. Because I might have someone who is very strong at, I don't know, the client relationship or really strong at a certain bit of content, but then I spot a gap on something else. Still to this day, I will go and sit in that gap, so to speak, and make myself very, very useful in that gap. But that's hard work. The sheet of paper is constantly blank, and you have to figure out how to upskill yourself relatively quickly. Well, that's the way in which I've made myself always useful in, in these situations. For someone else, it might just be being really deep in a bit of content. And you're constantly learning in that bit of content so that you become the subject matter expert for, mm-hmm. for that in that field. I guess my advice would be you have to figure out what your superpower is and use that to your advantage. But that takes time. And sometimes your superpower needs to, ch- to change. So when I was a junior in the consulting field, I realized that Excel and PowerPoint were our go-to tools. How do I make myself super sticky and important to a client? I just learn how to do those really quickly and really well. Now, that's not going to get you to MD, but that gets you to the next level because people pull you into their engagements. They know they can trust you. You show up on time. The meeting room's set up. The, the packs look pristine. The numbers are calculated to a very high uh, quality level. 
and you're constantly being pulled and asked for in a specific team, that gets you to level two. At level two, you might need to do something else. You might need to learn how to lead and lead in a way in which people want to be led by you. That's a different skill set that gets you to level three and so on and so on. So what I would say is that this life is a marathon, not a sprint. I think there's an element of keeping your eyes open, listening, pivoting where you need to, but also honing into what makes you special. Mm-hmm. And although it's a marathon, not a sprint, doesn't mean you can't plan for the next, what what are they called, watering holes or whatever, where they give you the, the water for the next couple of miles, right? But I'd yeah. keep that end goal in mind and divvy it up in a way in which you can give yourself things to work on towards that end goal and just keep at it really don't don't come off the path i love that you said your superpower changes over time i think that is an excellent piece of advice and a good way at looking at different stages in your career We now want to talk about your playbook. Those three pieces of strategic plays or advice that you would give anyone and that you have used throughout your career. So what's your first strategic play? So I, I, I think my strategic plays have changed throughout my career. I'll, I'll start with the one that I, I definitely use more now than I did in the past. And that's just remaining authentic. And I, I know that's a bit of a hackneyed term, but it's, for me, it's an, an incredibly important. So what do I mean by that? I think the advice would be determine what your non-negotiables are and make sure that in any situation or organization that those non-negotiables don't exist. And I think that allows you to then remain quite authentic in how you behave and how you learn and how you react and how you interact with others and the things you say, don't say, et cetera. And it's not just physical authenticity, it's also expressing yourself in an authentic way. So not constantly second guessing what you're doing or thinking of, if I respond in this way, you know, I should probably respond in the opposite way in order to be successful. The, the reason that's become more and more important for me is that in one of my previous roles, I remember we as a team did this team building exercise where we were asked to fill in a questionnaire. And unknown to us, the questionnaire basically uh, produced a number, two numbers at the end of it. And one number was a spot that you needed to stand in, which demonstrated how you behaved in the office. And another num- the other number basically was another spot that you could stand in to demonstrate how you behaved at home. And this was a team exercise with maybe 30 or 40 people. For everyone in that team, except for myself, those two numbers were close together. My numbers were at polar opposites from each other. And so I sort of raised my hand. I was relatively senior at this point in time. I raised my hand and I said, what does this mean? And then the facilitator said that those words (laughs) you never want to hear, come see me after this. And so that was just a really good example of, you know, I wasn't doing it purposely. I didn't know I was doing it, but clearly I was behaving in a way in which I thought I needed to behave in the office, which was completely different from how I behaved in real life, so to speak, at least in my my home life. So that 
gave me a lot of pause for thought. It explained to me why I felt so exhausted being in that particular organization because I basically had two different personalities. Um, so that would be my strategic play number one. Remain true to yourself, be authentic. If you're stretching yourself too far, plus or minus 10% more outside of that zone, then you're not in the right, not in the right place. The second thing for me would be listen to feedback. Seek and listen to feedback, but you also need to determine what you do with that feedback. So I use feedback to determine if there's something that needs to change and there's usually is something to change or to make better. But I also use this feedback to determine if there's something someone else needs to change. And, and so I think a lot of people shy away from feedback because it's an uncomfortable process to be in, but it depends on what you, what you use it for. You don't have to react to every bit of feedback, but I think there's a lot of insight that you can get from the feedback that you receive. And then the third one for me would be always being aware of the situation around you. And I think that's, it probably ties into being a little bit political maybe, or maybe not, but what I wouldn't only do is get my head down working and producing good quality work. I'd also recommend taking the time to lift that head up and observe what's happening around and see what needs to, to change with you or with others in order to make sure that you're being seen and heard. So those would be the three, I can probably go on and on, but those would be the three things for me, the authenticity, the feedback, both for acting and for not acting, and that observing and being astute as to what's happening around you while still delivering on your promises or delivering quality work. You've had years and decades of success. So what's next in your playbook? What are you cooking up? What's next for Keisha beyond this MD partner role? What's next for me beyond the MD partner role? Uh, this is, I've said this to many people, this is probably the last stop in my, at least my full-time career. I've only been in Accenture for about 18 months, coming up on two years. So there's still a lot more to give in this role. And I'm a level two MD, which means there's level one, which is senior managing director, which might or might not be part of my pathway, still, still to be decided. But what I will still be doing is making an impact. That's the bit that gets me out of bed in, in both client work. So I'm currently leading in a leading role in one of the largest transformations that we've done in Europe. That's giving me a lot of energy. And clearly in the role where I'm leading the early talent team, that's also giving me a lot of energy. How long will I do those two roles for? Don't know. But in, a, in an organization that has 730,000 employees, I'm sure there are other roles that can give that sense of impact and purpose to me as well. So exactly what those are, I'm not sure just yet. I'm happy doing what I'm doing at the moment. But back to my last point in, in terms of head down doing what I'm doing, but also observing to see what other opportunities there might be and, and when might be a good time to, to make a slightly, slightly different move. So just, um, I guess, watch this space. You have this sort of quiet strength that 
I didn't know that you had until this faithful conversation. I want to take you back to September 2020. I remember I was in line to go to church because I was so desperate for a solution to a particular issue that I was having at that point in time that I was like, you know what? I've tried everything else. I'm going to church. So I'm in the queue. <laughs> I'm in the queue to go to church because um, you have to line up space. And it's a whole, whole thing to get into church. And I don't know what happened. Like we exchanged messages on Instagram. And I was just telling you something that I was going through at that point in time. We knew each other. I wouldn't have said that we were close enough at that point in time. We are now to, to have these conversations. But I just probably was being at the church. It's like probably... God has sent Keisha to, like, you know, probably this is what it was. <laughs> so I'm there and I message you the situation. I remember you telling me, you're like, April, you have to fight because it's not just about you. It sends an indication about some of these, these structural issues within the organization from, uh, you know, making employees of color feel comfortable. So it's not just about you, it's about the person next to you, you know, the person after you, the person who's, you know, there. And I remember thinking, like, she was so right. And you gave me the strength, or probably God did, because I was in line at the church, um, to go and, you know, fight, to just be, you know, not to back down and to be intentional. You've always had this sort of intention about making sure that, women of color in the workplace show up and that we're successful and we know that we are examples for others who are coming behind us and that we should, you know, keep that in mind. Has that always been something that you think of as a woman of color? I don't think I've always thought of it because if you think about growing up in Trinidad, everyone's a woman of color or a man of color. So I haven't always thought about it. And I'm I'm not sure I actually can't remember the details of the conversation. I'm I do remember talking to you and I remember you being in, 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 in church, about to go into church. But I'm going to link this back to the whole listening and observing comment that I made. So having been in Europe for a while, I've changed the way in which I would react to certain situations based on listening and observing, particularly, you know, other people around my husband, for example, um, and other colleagues. In Trinidad, my reaction would normally be, I'll just try something else. Too bad. Um, they don't know what they're missing. It would be that sort of speech I'd give myself. Here, if there is an issue, a complaint is raised. And the, the complaint is raised formally. And I'm talking about things like your broadband being down, my husband would be on the phone and guess what? He's going to raise a complaint because the broadband was down. Whereas I would be, okay, let me just wait 20 minutes, go for a walk, come back and hopefully it will be up and, and running. And I think that sort of observation that I've seen being in Europe is, is what I've taken into pretty much everything, but mainly into the work life. If something's not happening in the right way, my first thing is in the right way to say, this is not right. Here, here are the reasons why. This is what I think you should do. And let's have a chat about it. Because the advantage of being in a place like the UK is that these things become transparent for others. They can't be hidden away or locked in a drawer. You see it in politics as well. Anything that is found out about, you know, whichever politician, the prime minister or whatever, gets spoken about in open forum. And... We discuss it and then things, hopefully, 
at least in most cases, get done about it. You might not agree with what gets done, but it's it's addressed. And that's that's the learning I've taken from being in in this in this part of part of the world, a sort of open dialogue about things that you don't believe are right. And in some instances, someone would convince you that actually you were wrong, right? Actually, that was the right thing to do because of X, Y, and Z. But having that dialogue and that debate, I think is important. And I think is the first step in any catalyst for change. I think bottling it up and going somewhere else, you don't know what the messaging is thereafter. You're not not in control of the message when you do that. There could have been a whole host of things that people say why that person has left. But when you erase something and have it documented, then then you're in control, at least uh, for one aspect of that messaging. And that's definitely something that I take very seriously. Most people know me as an escalation point. And you probably didn't know that at the time you spoke <laughs> to me. But even in, in the office, an analyst came up to me yesterday. It came into my office and he's, I can't remember exactly what he said, but I immediately left the office and I solved it. And he said, I can't believe you did that. I'm like, we're not gossiping here. If you tell me something, I'm going to solve it. And he was panicked that he's now going to be known as, you know, telling tales, et cetera, out of school. I said, well, next time you need to try to solve it first. But if you come into my office and ask me or tell me something's not working, I'm not just going to Mm. sit here and have a chat with you about it. I'm going to figure out how to raise it, how to get it sorted. And someone might push back and say, well, we've tried it before and it can't be sorted. Not a problem. But at least I know yeah. I've tried and I'm person number 101 to have raised it and that's logged somewhere. That's not been always the case. I'm a very introverted individual that just like thinks about stuff and never gets anything done. It's what I used to be many years ago. And now I think about stuff and then I figure how out to how to get it documented or at least how to how to get some form of change. And, and, or in the case of my husband, he'd be thinking of how to get compensation for his 20 minutes of downtime on the broadband. So I haven't gotten there yet, but just give me some, give me okay. some time. Keisha, this has been great. Thank you so much. I can see Lucky in the background. Is that Lucky? That's Ephesus. Lucky is here lying in the sun in front of me. Okay. And this Ephesus. Keisha has two <laughs> lovely cats, Lucky and Ephesus. And I can see one of them in the background. Thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. And I can't wait for everyone to hear your story. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. I hope you got some actionable pieces of advice from hearing Keisha's story. To learn more about Keisha, you can visit us on Instagram at Meet Pursuit. Don't forget to check the show notes for more information about all our guests and the Meet Pursuit community. On the next episode of Pursuits, I'm excited to have Tandy Machabella on the show. Tandy is a lawyer, influencer, and a skin enthusiast. She's the only person I get all my skincare advice from. Pursuit was produced by Iwan Obanyan, production assistant Adidamola Bajamo, with production by II Studios. Thanks for listening.